Hi, this is Lily DeHoya Sanderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Brothers and sisters, this is a hard week for me to do a podcast because it's on Easter. And I was talking to my husband about it and saying, the topic of Christ risen is so enormous and so beautiful that I feel wholly incapable of capturing a sufficient amount of glory in the words that I'm going to speak in this podcast. By now, if you've been listening to this podcast, you know I'm seldom at a loss for words, but this topic brings that kind of feeling to me because I do love my Savior Jesus Christ, my Lord and Redeemer, and I, I want to do honor to him. This is going to be a, a very lame attempt to do that. I want you to know that this year, especially, we've done this some things other years as well, but this year, I told my husband as we were talking about Easter, I said, let's do something special all through Holy Week that honors the Savior and celebrates his great gifts to us, his great being. So I've actually posted just a list on Patreon of some of the talks that Chris and I are going to listen to this week. In fact, I don't know if we'll wait till Sunday to start (laughs) Palm Sunday, which is the official beginning of Holy Week. We may start earlier because we have a lot of talks that we want to review and we'll probably add to the list as we go. But I've put a list of about 10 or so talks, maybe more. And some of the other things that we're going to do on Holy Week this year. And I'm very excited about it. I'm already feeling this lift of spirit as I plan on commemorating this wonderful time to celebrate our Savior and this great gift of resurrection and salvation from sin if we repent. So there's my disclaimer. I feel woefully inadequate. I did want to say, I mean, this is going to sound random. There's sort of a collection of random thoughts here today, and and I hope you'll bear with me and add your own and think of your own so that you too can can kind of build up to Easter and really, really rejoice in the message of Christ risen. I just wanted to say that like last fall, and this is not the first time we've traveled in the South, but last fall, Chris and I went to North Carolina to visit a daughter that lives there. And we had some time. She was actually sick for some of that time. So we had planned to incorporate some vacation time as well. And we drove up the Blue Ridge Parkway up to the northwestern corner of North Carolina. Some of you, I'm sure, are familiar with that area. It's really very beautiful. And you see the Blue Ridge Mountains there at the top. And it's just a gorgeous part of the country. And someone told us along the way about a cute little town called West Jefferson. So we went to West Jefferson. It's a little bit west of Boone. North Carolina, and it was a charming little town. And one of the things that struck me, and I found myself taking pictures of things like this, was the very obvious Christianity. It was everywhere. This tiny little town had, you know, different signs and in shop windows or those hinged chalkboard signs that you can put on the sidewalk. And they had scriptures about Jesus Christ or statements of faith. There was one that I took a picture of that said, his will, his way, my faith. And they had the verse, Jeremiah chapter 27, verse 11 there. And I, I thought that was so beautiful. There was a whole shop that had, you know, pretty little things inside, kind of a little boutique. And the name of the shop was The Third Day. 
and and it had a sunrise kind of image on their graphic design and I went in and I told the owner how much I loved that sign and I bought something just to support her her business because she said you know I I'm a believer and I thought how lovely and of course as we met with people and chatted with people there and in other places in the south people you know are really open about their faith and talk about celebrating Christ and calling on him and trusting in him. And I just find that beautiful. And I hope that we do that. You know, sometimes I, you know, I just hope we're as good a Christians as some other Christians where we are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not afraid to wear our faith on our sleeve, so to speak. I remember the irony. This is the, you know, kind of the other side of the coin, but inadvertent, I will admit this was, of course, just the, what happens every once in a while as the, Easter changes the day that we celebrate Easter every year, and sometimes it lands right on General Conference, right? So our Easter Sunday is spent listening to these wonderful prophets that we sustain. And I hope you all enjoyed General Conference this last weekend. It was wonderful. But I remember noticing years ago when we lived in Las Vegas, and it happened to be one of those Easter's that landed on General Conference And I guess I had been talking to some non-member friends, and they had been sort of asking again, are are you guys believers in Jesus Christ? I mean, are are you really Christian? Because there are a lot of things that are said about Latter-day Saints not being Christian. And the irony for me was that here on Easter Sunday, all our chapel parking lots would be empty. (laughs) I thought people are going to drive past those on their way to their churches to celebrate Easter. And they're going to say, see, we knew those Mormons were not Christian. (laughs) And I thought, if only they knew that we are sitting figuratively at the feet of the prophets, the special witnesses of Jesus Christ, and hopefully drinking deeply of of their testimonies and their counsel and their witnesses of the Savior. Now, on another note, not quite as ironic, it was a sad day. One year, a long time ago, we were in a ward in another place and somebody forgot about Easter that was planning her sacrament meetings. I wasn't on the ward council at the time, so I didn't know anything about how this had happened, but we got to church. It was Easter Sunday and there was no program. There were no hymns. There were no Easter hymns that we sang. I don't remember what all the hymns were, but one of them was put your shoulder to the wheel as a sacrament hymn on Easter Sunday. There were no talks about Jesus Christ. And of course, every talk should be about Jesus Christ, in a sense. Nevertheless, that Sunday, there was certainly no particular emphasis on the Savior at all. I was grief stricken. I sat there and kind of held my kids and said, this is Easter and we will celebrate Easter In fact, I was teaching gospel doctrine at that time, and as soon as sacrament meeting had concluded, I went up to the organist who had played in sacrament meeting, and I said, could you please stay at the organ? We were meeting in the chapel for gospel doctrine, and I said, we're going to sing the Easter hymns, if that's okay with you. And she said, oh, that would be great. So just as we began gospel doctrine that day, we sang the Easter hymns that are in our hymn book and celebrated in that moment the rising of the Savior from the grave. But it made me so sad. I thought, how did, how did that happen? How do we not look forward to Easter? How do we not anticipate and build up our celebration 
So I invite all of you to build up your celebration this week in anticipation of the great Easter Sunday to come and that whatever your wards do or don't do, that you and your family will celebrate the risen Lord in a very personal, meaningful way and take time to ponder on this amazing gift, this amazing doctrine that we have, that Christ is literally risen from the grave. I've told you before, I had a close friendship with George Pace from the BYU religion department. He was a professor of mine when I was an undergrad, and I ended up becoming a research assistant for him and worked for him for a few years. And then the friendship just remained. And anytime we were visiting Provo, I would try to stop by and and see George and his wonderful wife, Diane. And I'm pretty sure he shared this story in all his classes. But I vividly remember George talking about going to an ecumenical conference, you know, many Christian churches being represented there to represent our church and BYU. He had participated in the discussions and one of the seminar parts, they were in a room where people would go up on the stage and share the different things from the microphone. And they were talking about the resurrection. And as they talked about this, and this was decades ago, as they talked about the resurrection, there was a lot of hedging about this where ministers and priests of other religions who all professed to be Christian were saying that the resurrection was most likely figurative, metaphorical. It wasn't an actual coming out of the grave, but it was sort of a continuation and that we can all continue in spirit through our loved ones or people that we've influenced or family members as the generations go by, and that that constitutes the resurrection in their view. And George said, I, I kind of I sat there as long as I could, and then I went to the stage, and I took a microphone in each hand and bore a rip-roaring testimony of the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ. How grateful I am that our church teaches that, our sacred doctrine, which comes from Jesus Christ himself, in the restoration of the gospel in this dispensation, that we know that it is a literal resurrection that the scriptures prophesied and then recorded and now testify of. And our living prophets do that today. They testify of a literal resurrection, the joining of body and spirit that breaks the bands of death for each of us. And then the great atoning sacrifice, which breaks the band of sin on conditions of repentance. May we all be witnesses of that great doctrinal message. And of course, many of you, as did I, grew up in the church, or when we joined the church, we became aware that we don't use crosses in our chapels. We don't use crosses on our temples. And I remember my parents explaining that, because we don't focus on the crucified Christ. We focus on the risen Christ. Again, in a literal resurrection from the dead, Christ broke the bands of death for all of us and the bands of sin, if we are willing. Another kind of random memory, if you'll forgive me, was when I was teaching seminary, there were six teachers in that building that all taught different classes. And we would visit afterwards and become pretty good friends, visit about a lot of things. So I was close to these people. One young man was a fairly recent graduate of law school. He had started his practice, and he was teaching the sophomores, I think. And all of the teachers were in the foyer that day of the chapel greeting students as they came into the chapel for a morning side. 
though kind of like a fireside, but in place of our regular morning classes for seminary. And so we're greeting them and directing them into the chapel. One young man came in with kind of a ball cap on, but it had the N-I-N with the backwards N at the end, insignia on the ball cap. And I didn't even know what it meant. I was pretty much out of it, but my friend Corey knew what it meant, that it stood for Nine Inch Nails, which was a rock band. And then I also didn't know, but Corey did, that it was often used as a representation. I mean, I don't know what the band's intention was, but that sort of traditionally the nails that crucified Christ were nine inches long. And I was I was touched that Corey went up to this young man, who was a, a nice young man. He wasn't like a big rebel or anything, but thoughtlessly he had this cap on and Corey went up and very kindly but very firmly said, no, you're not wearing that hat in the house of the Lord. Go put it in your car. And to give him credit, the young man went and put the cap in his car and then came back in to join us for Morningside. And I was touched by that because I thought, isn't this the reverence we should always have for the Savior and his sacred sacrifice? Let's not ever treat it lightly. I remember a story. I don't have a reference on this. I'm sure we could find it if we looked it up. President Kimball once told about being in a hospital for surgery and he was being taken on a gurney into the elevator to go up to a different floor. And in the elevator, there were doctors and nurses and other medical professionals there that were just chatting to each other and using God's and Christ's name in vain. And how President Kimball kindly but firmly said, please don't speak of him in that manner. I love him so much. I'm so touched by people's true love and enduring reverence for our Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. I hope that all of us will be careful with their names upon our lips, that we will be sensitive to the respect and the reverence that should always surround our mention of our great God and our amazing Redeemer. So what follows now are just some, again, sort of different invitations for you to consider how Christ can be celebrated in your own mind and heart and in your life, and some of the ways that I celebrate or have celebrated in the past. I wanted to share this. I started really seriously studying the gospel when I was in high school, toward the end of high school, and then, of course, in my undergrad years. Read a lot, studied a lot, really immersed myself in scripture. And I became really interested in the concept of sanctification in this wonderful doctrine, which is so relevant to us now. If we choose to prepare to become a Zion people, we are on the road to sanctification, which is done by the power of the Holy Ghost, which can consume the elements of corruption out of spirit and body. We become a new creature in Christ. This is the birth of fire, right? Like Christ told Nicodemus, a man must be born of water and of the spirit. You know, a baptism of water and a baptism of fire. And it is the baptism of fire, that being born of the spirit, that is sanctification. And it's a very specific doctrine that only comes to those who have demonstrated 
their consistent commitment, their steadfast obedience to the commandments of God. Now that is different from being perfect. Perfection is an endowment that Christ bestows upon us in the resurrection, that the Father and the Son bestow upon the faithful in the resurrection. Now, though, we need to choose to be on this path toward sanctification so that we can be born of the Spirit. And it requires a very intentional obedience, not just goodness, not causing trouble, but hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And I was really interested in doing that, and I still am. But at that time, you know, being pretty young, I thought, okay, I'm really, really going to be as good as I can be. I want to avoid sin of any kind. I don't want to be impatient. I don't want to be unkind. I don't want to be, you know, slothful in any of the commandments. I want to keep the Sabbath day. I want to be modest in speech and dress. And anyway, all the things that that God invites us to do. And it was really hard. (laughs) The more I tried, the more I became aware of my failings. I was really scrutinizing my behavior day by day. And I found that I was weak in so many areas. I mean, I was a pretty good person. What can I say? (laughs) I was not anywhere close to as good as I wanted to be. And the harder I tried, the more I was aware of my weakness and my failings. So I remember having this feeling that I was caught in an undertow. Any of you who've swum in the ocean know what that's like, or many of you do. You you go out a ways and it doesn't even see that seem that far from the from the shore, but there is a strong riptide current that starts to carry you out to sea. And the harder you swim against it, it seems like the further out you get. So you swim really hard and then you look up and you're and you're farther away from the shore than you were before. It's it's frightening how powerful that current is, that undertow. In fact, you know, some places that you travel to, they warn you of it, even in the airports, and say, beware, because they lose people every year to those strong riptides. And of course, you learn that you have to swim kind of across it, not try to get to the shore directly, but kind of go across current. There are ways to be safe in the ocean. It's a, it's a scary feeling, however. And there are always times where lifeguards have to go out or other people try to you know, create a string or something and pull people in from that undertow. I felt like that. I felt like the harder I tried to be acceptable, to be celestial, the further away I felt because my scrutiny had really ramped up. My standards had really gone high and I was was not at that level. And then it struck me as I was thinking about all this, I thought, you know, I've heard about the Savior my whole life. And I believed. I'm, I'm a believer. I've always been a believer. And I never understood how essential he was to me. Because I was a good person, I thought, well, you know, I'm doing pretty well. I'm not, you know, I mean, we all sin, right? So I'm not saying I was perfect by any means. I am saying that, you know, I, I wasn't rebellious. And yet here I was in my, in my earnest commitment to be good and finding that I needed such redemption from my own humanity, you know, from just my human weaknesses and faults that were not going to be overcome easily. So it was like I was in that riptide and looking for a lifesaver, like I was looking almost like 
you know, who can pull me in? And there was the Savior. And I clung to him in a way that I never had before. It was, it was life-changing for me to realize my personal need for Jesus Christ and to recognize at a new level, which has continued to grow through the years of my life, how great the gift of redemption is, how gracious is our Savior that he would rescue even I. Many of us love that wonderful hymn, I Stand All Amazed. That's how I felt. I still feel that way. But those words so resonated with me. I stand all amazed at the love Jesus offers me, confused at the grace which so fully he proffers me. I tremble to know that for me he was crucified, that for me, a sinner, he suffered, he bled and died. Oh, it is wonderful, wonderful to me. Every verse of that song brings me near tears, if not overflowing tears, because I am amazed at the goodness of Christ, the goodness of our Heavenly Father who created this merciful plan, and in awe of the immense and infinite love with which Christ completed the plan through his personal atoning sacrifice. It reminded me of this beautiful verse in section 88. It's verse 33. For what doth it profit a man if a gift is bestowed upon him and he receive not the gift? Behold, he rejoices not in that which is given unto him, neither rejoices in him who is the giver of the gift. How can we fully rejoice in Jesus Christ if we don't receive the gift that he gives, that he offers to each of us, but we must actively receive it? Reception in this case is not a passive condition. It's an active condition to receive the gift through our repentance, through our efforts to become more like him. And it, I think it's important to recognize that we don't have to commit serious sin. We don't have to be rebellious. That happens sometimes in people's lives. And our almighty Savior can still reach out to us and bring us home. But it's not necessary. I mean, sometimes we hear these sort of foolish comments about like, well, nobody understands the Savior like a sinner does or a repentant sinner. And that's not true. Brothers and sisters, that is categorically untrue. We do not have to ever be rebellious. We do not have to ever involve ourselves in serious sin in order to understand the great love and mercy of the plan and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. All we have to do is seek sanctification. If we commit ourselves to that path of refinement, of being born again through the Spirit, being cleansed by the fire of the Spirit, we will come to know how gracious the gift of Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice is for us individually. A few verses about the Savior, and believe me, these are such a small selection that I'm, and again, I'm sort of overcome by how many wonderful things there are that help me to celebrate Christ in my life. The scriptures, of course, help me to celebrate Christ because he is in the scriptures. They are a testament to him. So grateful to be studying the Old Testament again this year. 
with all, all the wonderful information, the messianic prophecies to come. But I'm going to quote just a very few, if you'll forgive me today, and I hope you'll find your own and celebrate the Savior every day of your life, but especially at this time of year. This is Isaiah 49. And of course, Isaiah is full of incredible messianic language and beautiful poetry concerning the coming of the Savior and his holy mission. Let me give a little background on one of the reasons I so love these verses in, in Isaiah 49. I have a pretty good memory, but there was a time when I was raising the kids as a full-time mom that I just went on total overload. And that's kind of funny for me to say now because I was on overload several times after that as well. <laughs> and sometimes I feel that right now. However, what distinguished that time in my memory is that I was literally forgetting to do tasks. Now, I make lists and so on and always have, but I was forgetting things that I was writing down on the list and they were important things like picking up a certain kid from school at a certain time or one time I told a friend that I would watch her kids one afternoon and then I was gone when she came because I had completely forgotten. I felt terrible about it. And I told my husband, I said, Chris, I'm, I'm forgetting really important things. And that's never happened to me before. I mean, I might have made my list, but then I remembered things pretty well. And I felt like one new idea came in the front of my brain and something fell out the back. So I definitely was on overload. And Chris, bless his heart, went out and got me a daytimer planner, which was kind of the rage in the business arena those days. So I started writing things down in that daytimer. And then Chris always sort of upgraded me. I think we did a Franklin planner for a while. And then it was a, you know, Samsung wizard and whatever that one was. And then a Palm Pilot. And now it's all on our phones, right? So he was super helpful. But you can sabotage the best system because not only do you have to write it down on the right day, but you also have to go back and read it on the right day in order to be prompted to remember that item. And I was helped by those tools, but it wasn't a perfect system because sometimes I was busy and I'd forget to look or forget to write something down. So I learned at that time something kind of random. I'm not saying this would work for everybody, but I learned to take like a ballpoint pen and write the note, the reminder prompt on my thumb, you know, just that lower part of the hand and then into my thumb. And I would write it with a ballpoint pen and I would never forget it if it was written on my thumb. And I even told my children, look, if it's super important, please make sure I write it right here on my thumb and then I won't forget. And I've still done that sometimes now, less, less so now, but I know it would work for me. And why? Because we always see our hands. And it really was born into me at that time that we always see our hands. We're washing our hands throughout the day. We use our hands for so many things that if you've got something written on your thumb, you're going to see it. And so I would never forget. And then, of course, I was reminded of these beautiful verses in Isaiah 49, Verses 15 and 16. Can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? And why is that question important? Because it's so unnatural for a woman to forget her child. How does a woman forget her child? And yet the answer, yay, they may forget. And we live in a world where the love of men and women can wax cold. We've heard the horrible stories of 
women dumping a newborn child in the trash or abandoning a child. It doesn't happen often and it always just offends our sensibilities because it's so unnatural for a mother's love to be corrupted in a way that she could forget her own child. Look at the, look at the image that God is creating here. I'm going to read it again. Can a woman forget her sucking child? That she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget. Yet will I not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. That took on a whole new level of beauty for me. Because I realized that Christ sees us always because we are engraven upon the palms of his hands in the marks of the atonement. He sees that all the time. He sees us all the time. Can a mother forget her own child? Yes, as unnatural and offensive as that is to our spirits. That happens. But Christ will never forget us. And while we're in Isaiah, let's go just to another page to chapter 50. Lots of messianic prophecy in this beautiful, beautiful chapter. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2, parts of those verses. Thus saith the Lord, Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement, whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities ye have sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. In other words, why would you think I would turn from you? How could I, your Savior, ever turn from you? Is there a bill of your mother's divorcement? Did I divorce your mother and abandon my children? Or to whom have I sold you? To which of, of your creditors have I sold you? No, I never have turned away from my people. Verse 2, skipping a little. Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? I love that. Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Like, who do you think you're talking to here? Is my hand limited in my power to redeem? Is my redemption reserved only for a few? Or is there an expiration date on it? No. Or have I no power to deliver? Don't go there. <laughs> That's what I hear the Lord saying. Don't go there. You think I can't save you? Don't go there. My hand is not shortened. My power to redeem is never limited. It is all-encompassing. All we have to do is do our part to allow the Lord to save us. I love a phrase that is found in different places in Scripture. Several times in the Book of Mormon actually mentioned in this way, that Christ is mighty to save. Mighty to save. We have a mighty Savior, an almighty God. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, another beautiful phrase about Jesus Christ that just fills my heart. But to you that fear my name, shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. Isn't that gorgeous? The sun of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. He has all power to heal. I'm a counselor. I work with a lot of people who are hurt, 
wonderful people who have been battered and tossed by the storms of life, as we all are. And I love that I know who the healer is. I'm not the healer. I can facilitate and I do my best to help, but I know who the healer is. And I'm so grateful that I worship the great healer. Now, how can we celebrate this week? Well, you know, sing the Easter hymns or play them. If you can play an instrument, play them with your instrument. Sing them with your family, whether you have an instrument or not. Now we can just turn on our phones or computer and you've got the music. And sing the Easter hymns. Don't wait till Sunday. We don't even have time now that we've got limited time to sing in church. We don't have time to sing all the Easter hymns every Easter. So make sure you have a chance to to sing those beautiful hymns and to relish the words, to celebrate the messages of those great hymns. And can I just make another pitch? I do this periodically, but please sing the hymns in church. Please sing the hymns. Teach your children to sing the hymns. Get books for them, or, you know, it's all on their phone now, and they can, they can easily find the words. But let us sing the songs of Zion, and certainly sing the songs of Easter, I've been a choir director before, and it's a great privilege to be a choir director around Easter or Christmas because you get to put together the program, and it's always a wonderful way to share that great spirit with the congregation and make an offering musically and in words. I remember one year I had the choir sing three songs I'm going to mention. We probably did more than that. I think we had the children sing and the congregation sing because we should all sing on Easter, right? But one of the songs the choir sang was the primary song that's written for the children called He Sent His Son. Beautiful hymn. So don't just stick with the hymn book. I mean, find other wonderful materials that celebrate our Savior Jesus Christ, right? And this one, look at those wonderful words. How could the Father tell the world of sacrifice, of death? He sent his Son to die for us and rise with living breath. Those words are thrilling. It was another beautiful choir piece that I don't know how I came upon this one. I think it was a more talented choir director probably that uh, had shared this with me. It's called Pavan. Beautiful music. One of my daughters, Eden, played it for a choir and it was so gorgeous. She did such a great job. But look at these words. Alas, and did my Savior bleed? And did my Sovereign die? Did he his sacred head devote to sinners such as I? I just want to take a second and mention that, you know, if you look up the word excruciating, it's always associated in its Latin roots with crucifixion. And while we don't focus on the dying Christ, we focus on the living Christ. It's important for us not to skip over Gethsemane or to skip over Calvary, but to recognize the price that was paid for each one of us, that he bled from every pore, that he died an excruciating death because of his immense love for us. Again, did my Savior bleed? Did my Sovereign die? Well might the sun yet hide its glories when God our Maker died to pardon us from sin. The song goes on, yet drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. 
beautiful, beautiful tribute to Christ's sacrifice and suffering on my behalf. Another song that is not just for Easter, can be sung any time of year by Lynn Lund. It's called No Other Name. And of course, there are many scriptures that refer to the fact that it is only through the name of Christ that we are saved. One place in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, that gives us that testimony is a story of Peter and John who heal a man who is lame. And then they're brought before the council and asked, you know, how did you do this? By what power did you heal this man? And in Acts 4, verses 10 to 12, Peter responds, Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught by you builders, which is become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. What a powerful testimony. What, what an amazing witness, again, of Jesus Christ and his holy name. There is no other name. The words of this song are quite beautiful, this choir piece. There is no other name, nor any other way whereby salvation can come. It's only in and through the name of Jesus Christ, the name of Jesus, the Lord. He is the Lord, omnipotent. Only he is able to make me holy, the Lord of all the earth, God's only begotten Redeemer and Savior. So beautiful. These witnesses can be carried in music, in word, in poetry, in the beauty of the earth in the springtime. What an amazing symbol we have that the earth comes to life again, just as we celebrate the risen Lord. I do want to mention that it is not just on Easter or during Easter time that we should celebrate Christ and, and the risen Lord. It's every Sunday. It's every day, of course. But every Sunday, we have a wonderful opportunity to have an Easter moment when we sing the sacrament hymns and partake of the sacrament. I mean, I hope we'll think of it as an Easter moment, a celebratory time for us to remember the sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and his victory over death and hell. I'm just going to mention one sacrament hymn, although every sacrament hymn, if you think about it, is an Easter hymn. And I hope that we will have Easter in our hearts every Sunday as we prepare for and partake of the sacrament. And again, please teach your children to sing these hymns and sing them yourself. This is hymn number 182. They're all so beautiful that I'm embarrassed to choose just one. We'll sing all hail to Jesus' name and praise and honor give to him who bled on Calvary's hill and died that we might live. He passed the portals of the grave. And this next phrase is one of my favorites in hymns. Salvation was his song. Isn't that beautiful? Salvation was his song. He passed the portals of the grave. Salvation was his song. He called upon the sin-bound soul to join the heavenly throng. Again, the next verse, beautiful. He seized the keys of death and hell and bruised the serpent's head. He bid the prison doors unfold. The grave yield up her dead. These hymns are just stunningly beautiful. Don't miss them. 
sing the words, learn the words, memorize the words. I can't tell you how often I've had prayers answered or inspiration received through words of hymns that I know in my head that just be from singing them for years or sometimes even making deliberate efforts to learn them that have blessed my life because of, of how doctrinally beautiful these words are. And of course, maybe you remember that President Faust in a beautiful speech from October Conference 2001 in a speech called The Atonement, Our Greatest Hope, quoted the words, a line or two from the hymn in humility, our Savior, another of our beautiful sacrament hymns. And the words he quoted were these, Let me not forget, O Savior, thou didst bleed and die for me. And then President Faust posed this tender thought when he asked, I wonder how many drops were shed for me. That sentence has stayed with me over the years, I hope it stays with all of us that we acknowledge that Christ's sacrifice was for us individually. It was for me. It was for you. It was for each of us individually because he loves us individually. And I don't want to add to that load. I don't want to add to the burden of the Savior. I realize that that's kind of a weird question because the atonement is already accomplished and it's infinite. But it doesn't it doesn't hurt me to be aware that there was a cost to my sin that was paid by Christ. And I don't want to add to that burden by the choices I make in life. I know we all fall short. This is not about condemning ourselves when we do fall short or when we do sin or have moments of rebellion. It's about coming back as quickly as we can and doing what we can to stay on the path. And if we make that commitment, we can stay on the path so that we don't add to the number of drops of blood that the Savior shed for us. I hope you'll go with me on that stretch. Again, I know it's an infinite atonement. There's no limit to Christ's atoning sacrifice or the love that prompted it and gives it power. But I love this thought. I love it. How many drops were shed for me? That can change the energy of my soul to want to be more obedient more acceptable. Just a couple more thoughts. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to comfort all that mourn, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning. Love that verse. I have a PowerPoint slide with that verse on it that I use sometimes to conclude a message because that's what it's about. The Savior gives us this gift. He was sent to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to comfort us when we mourn, to give us beauty for ashes. I've told you about my Isaiah paperweight and it's here on my desk. He takes the ashes of life, all the broken parts, all the burned up parts, and he creates beauty out of them in us if we allow him to do so. And he gives us the oil of joy in place of our grief and our mourning. Receive it. 
Let us all receive it. This is a story I'm sure many of you have heard. It was told by Marion D. Hanks back in April of 1992 in a speech called The Royal Law. Tender story. I've shared with my, this with my children and grandchildren and many others, especially the Easter season. So I'm going to read the words of Marion D. Hanks from that conference address. As Easter time approaches, let me share with you the tender story of an 11-year-old boy named Philip, a Down syndrome child who was in a Sunday school class with eight other children. Easter Sunday, the teacher brought an empty plastic egg for each child. They were instructed to go out of the church building onto the grounds and put into the egg something that would remind them of the meaning of Easter. All returned joyfully. As each egg was opened, there were exclamations of delight at a butterfly, a twig, a flower, a blade of grass. Then the last egg was opened. It was Philip's, and it was empty. Some of the children made fun of Philip. But teacher, he said, teacher, the tomb was empty. A newspaper article announcing Philip's death a few months later noted that at the conclusion of the funeral, eight children marched forward and put a large empty egg on the small casket. On it was a banner that said, the tomb was empty. Brothers and sisters, such a simple story, such a powerful truth. The tomb was empty. Some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture are found in Luke chapter 24, verses 5 and 6. Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. We celebrate a resurrected Savior. He lives. He lives today. He lives forever. And because he lives, I will live again as well and be reunited with all my loved ones and have the chance for whatever glory I choose. We are choosing glory day by day. I want to be with him. I want to have that glory. We can choose it because he is a risen Lord, because he is an almighty Savior with healing in his wings. I looked this up last year. We had grandchildren staying with us at the time. And somehow I came across this little article that talked about a greeting that is a traditional paschal or Easter greeting on Easter day in some countries, kind of in places where the Eastern Orthodox Church is, but it has spread to some Roman Catholic observance and even other Christian denominations. And this paschal greeting, which is also known as the Easter acclamation, means this, that one person greets another by saying, he is risen. And the other person responds, he is risen indeed. Isn't that beautiful? That all day as we greet people on Easter, we could celebrate the truth of the risen Lord. He is risen indeed. May we rejoice forevermore that Christ is risen the Almighty Son of the Almighty Father, the Lamb without spot, chosen before the foundations of the world to come and save his people. 
I hope you'll consider joining me on Patreon. You can go to p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash choosing glory to subscribe and help support this podcast. That will allow me to keep going and develop more content. Thanks to all of those of you who have subscribed and thanks to all of those of you who listen. I want to also thank, of course, my husband, Chris Anderson, for all his help and support and Doug Larson of Point Digital, who does a great job. Let's choose glory. Take care.